For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And I've just gotten off a call with the authors of a book called A Matter of Basic Principles, and it's basically about Bill Gothard and his cultist teachings. So I've just talked with Don Vino and Ron Hensel, who wrote this book about 20 years ago, but it just had an update with a new foreword by Ginger Duggar Volo. Now, many of you may recognize that name because I did a podcast episode with Ginger and Melissa Doherty where we talked through her story of coming out of the unbiblical teachings of Bill Gothard. Now, the Bill Gothard uh, teachings have been very influential in evangelical culture for the last few decades. And so this is an important episode for us to understand maybe how those have infiltrated the church and how we can spot them. And I loved all the practical things we talked about. One of the highlights of today's episode for me was when Ron talked about how sometimes cults have evangelical statements of belief, and that can be very disarming for Christians who think, oh, they're checking the right boxes doctrinally, but then there's this authoritarian side, um, and there can be high control and things like that. So we talked through that. We talked through the pillars of the Bill Gothard teachings and how that has really infiltrated a lot of Christian homes and churches through homeschool curriculums. And we talked about the continued influence of Bill Gothard and his teachings and what we can be looking out for. So this is an important episode. I also want to encourage you to go back into the archives and listen to that episode with Ginger because she lived it. She came out of it with the Bible as her authority. So here's my conversation with Don Vino and Ron Hensel. Well, I'm so thrilled to have Don Vino and Ron Hensel on with us. You guys have written a great book. Well, this is actually the 20th anniversary edition now of A Matter of Basic Principles, and it's all about the teachings of Bill Gothard. Now, if any of my audience, if that name doesn't ring a bell, you might remember my conversation with Ginger Duggar Vuolo, where she talked about coming out of the uh, the Gothard teachings. And of course, you may recognize her family from the TLC shows about, uh, was it 14 Kids and Counting? Then it was 15 kids and counting, the families with lots of kids. You know, lots of you guys remember those. Um, but what a lot of people may not realize is that underneath those TV shows and those families, there are some really unbiblical teachings. And we're going to talk about those today. But what I'd love to have you guys do first is tell us a little bit about yourselves, what you do. Don, we'll start with you. Well, I am, I grew up as an atheist. My father was an atheist, not a uh, intellectual atheist. He just wanted to live how I wanted to live and God was sort of in the way. So uh, that was how I grew up. I didn't really know anything different. I met a young lady when I was the ripe old age of 15. 
she was a Christian. She should have dated me. She did. I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> she married me. She shouldn't have. I'm glad she did. Uh, and I became a believer after our son was born three years later. Uh, she met some Jehovah's Witnesses and had a real passion to try to reach them and came home and said, I, I don't really know what they believe. Let's figure this out. We went and saw my pastor who didn't know what they believed either. Uh, and so it became an adventure to sort this out. One thing led to another, and over the years, we ended up starting Midwest Christian Outreach as a mission to cults and non-Christian religions, mostly Jehovah's Witnesses, the International Churches of Christ. Uh, and then over time, it brings thoughts to doing kind of whoever calls, we try to help them. Uh, and these days, I spend probably as much time going to events with Wiccans and Druids and Satanists, the Parliament of World's Religions, which has a gathering this last time of 8,500 from around the planet uh, to try to talk with them about the gospel, compare worldviews. So we're missionaries to cults and non-Christian religions. In the process, we end up having to deal with false teaching in the church, which is how Bill Gothard entered our lives. Wow. Uh, that's a little bit about our background and how we got started. Well, and I also want to mention for our audience, one thing that may be of interest is that Don and his wife, Joy, co-wrote a book about the Enneagram with Marsha Montenegro. And so one of my most popular podcast episodes mm -hmm. with, was with Marsha talking about mm -hmm. the Enneagram, or I should say most famous or infamous, depending on who you ask about it. But, um, you know, a lot of people tell me that that episode was very persuasive for them of, you know, being able to mm -hmm. let go of the Enneagram and, and even renounce it. I had people even tell me they repented of the Enneagram after they watched that episode. So for our audience, uh, it's called Richard Rohr and the Enneagram secret. And that's a book that, that Don and his wife, Joy, co-wrote with uh, Marsha. So definitely pick that up. Ron, tell us about yourself. Well, I, oh boy, my story is more complicated than Don's, but I'll try to condense it. Um, I was raised in a Roman Catholic family, um, which was, um, you know, in, in some ways was typical, but in some, it was a faithful family in terms of having me go to church and learn the things I needed. Uh, nevertheless, I became an agnostic uh, by the time I was in my teens. Um, shortly after my dad died, when I was 15, I began searching. Uh, and that same year, I did become a Christian. I, I heard the gospel outside the church I was raised in, and that did cause a little stress in my family. But um, I attended a Bible college, met my wife there, uh, worked a little bit in Christian ministry for a few years. And, um, and, and then um, I had kind of a, a hit a spiritual low in my life. And as a result, my wife and I joined a group we thought was going to help us, but it was it ended up being very abusive, hmm. uh, even we would say cultish. And uh, after about five and a half years in that group, I, I, I felt like I, I barely survived it in some ways, but I did, I did get out and my wife did as well. Uh, and I had a lot of questions. And one of the questions was connected to Bill Gothard because the leader claimed that he had once worked for Gothard and that... Um, it, 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 that made me wonder how, how much of what I was went through goes back to something Bill Gothard had taught. 
Well, at this point, I was working at Wheaton College, where I eventually got my MA in Biblical Studies. I, I went to their libraries. I, I could find hardly anything that he'd written there. Um, now, I didn't know Don quite yet, but I um, I got a call from somebody who was working with um, Midwest Christian Outreach, uh, and they were calling me about the group I had just left. I didn't want to talk to anybody about that. I, I just wanted to, I wanted to run and hide because I was, I mean, it was a multiple, multiple reasons. I was embarrassed that I'd been part of it. I was uh, still kind of afraid of what the leader could do um, in my life. And I, I think I told Dave when he called, you know, it's like, I don't want to, don't want to talk to you guys. I don't, but you know, you, you, between you and Dave, Don, you persuaded me to cooperate because other people were getting sucked into this. Right. And um, so I did. And it, in the meantime, I started kind of working with Midwest Christian Outreach. I didn't really intend to get into this, but I did. I, I had previously worked in cult evangelism, so it wasn't totally new to me. But to me back then, cult evangelism had previously met Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, things like that. I really didn't think that I would be suckered into a group with an evangelical statement of faith right. that was mm-hmm. really very... I mean, very similar in the, the kinds of things that happened. Uh, and it involved things that I wasn't familiar with from those other groups. So anyways, um, I also had family connections to Gothard at that time. And some of those resulted in some pretty tragic uh, episodes. So um, Don, I get a call from Don after... A, a few years. It was what ninety six, Don ninety five. Oh no, before that, we started writing about him in ninety five. We already done some research on it by then. So I think so our first ninety five. You called me and and said, "What do you know?" I, I don't know what you said, but maybe it was something like, "What do you know about Bill Gothard?" You sent me a letter from Dick or an article from Dick Fisher. Right. And I said, well, Don, I just happened to be <laughs> trying to find what I can find about this guy because I'm wondering if if there's some connection between his, what I experienced and him. Uh, and of course, it's a, we'll probably get into the details of how this unfolded, but um, we began working on it. And uh, it was it kind of there was like a parallel track going on in my life. This family thing was happening with my a cousin and her, and her husband and other things. And there was this research I was doing and there was me really kind of recovering from the experience that I'd gone through. I mean, the nineties were kind of a bummer in a, in a yeah. way for me because, you know, I was still uh, trying to put myself, my spiritual life back together again. But the master's program was helping my, the church I was in was helping. I, I was, getting a lot of help from those things. Plus Don, you know, Don was helping me. Don, thanks, Don. You were helping me. So, um, and maybe working on the project also was helping me clarify things in my mind. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really expect it would end up uh, with a book, uh, but it did. Uh, I also finished my master's program and, and published my thesis privately uh, so then we moved down here to Florida. We adopted a, a, our son from South Korea. 
can't believe he's now a cop. <laughs> he's since wow. found a wife. And anyways, but that's yeah, kind very of good. in a nutshell. The smallest nutshell I could find. Sorry. Yeah, no, that I think that's really helpful. And one of the points that you just made, I wrote down because... I think it's something for us all to sort of ponder. You know, we watch documentaries about these really kind of wacky cults, and it's so easy to sit back and say, oh, I could never get sucked into something like that. I would never believe that. But you said, you know, you don't expect a cult to have an evangelical belief statement. And I've experienced church environments, um, one in particular, where I, I could say that pretty much describes what I went through as well, where it, at least at best it's cultish, where yeah. you have a, a very authoritarian leader, you have very rigid beliefs, um, you're not supposed to go against the grain, you're not supposed to question the leader. And not uh, these things aren't always on paper written down. These are unspoken things. And I think that um, ultimately all of us are vulnerable to that if we don't really remain rooted in biblical authority and and um, keep our eyes open for those things. So I appreciate you bringing that point out, which brings us to Bill Gothard. So I'd love it if you could just give us a little bit of an overview for anybody who's really unfamiliar with the Gothard teachings. This is honestly really new to me. I uh, I never really watched the TLC shows about the Duggars. I, I I mean, I knew about them and I knew they had a lot of kids and they said and they were Christians, mm-hmm. but I didn't really know much more about that. So let's start with Bill Gothard himself. Don, who is Bill Gothard? Did you know that the vast majority of meat that you're buying in your grocery store is coming from overseas, from countries that don't always have the highest quality standards or transparency? In fact, over 85% of the beef that you buy in the grocery store is imported. That's 5 billion pounds of meat that was imported just last year. And so customers are buying from places that don't necessarily share their values. And this is why I love Good Ranchers. Um, You can finally remove the mystery from the meat you've been buying from the grocery store. You can support local ranchers, you can get the quality you trust, and you can actually support this podcast by purchasing meat from Good Ranchers, which is a sponsor of our show. Now, they have a really amazing offer for Leap Year. This is crazy. If you sign up right now, you're going to get free bacon for four years. That's free bacon until the next Leap Year in each one of your boxes. So that's uh, one and a half pounds of their Applewood smoked bacon in every order for four years. That's 72 pounds of free bacon that they're going to send you just for subscribing to Good Ranchers. So that's over $900 That's a $900 value, so free bacon. Really awesome. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use my code ELISA to claim your free bacon, and you're going to get a discount as well. So use the code ELISA at GoodRanchers.com. Get that free bacon for four years. Okay, that's a a good starting point because he still has influence in the church, even though many that will be viewing this may not have heard of him directly other than mentioned on the uh, on the uh, series that they just did. Uh, Bill Gothard uh, grew up in LaGrange, Illinois. He um, <laughs> wanted to start sort of a youth program and did a, a thesis on that. Uh, and in 1964, started doing seminars, small seminars, a dozen or so people. Uh, on what he called the basic life 
uh, not Basic Bear Principles, Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts. So what is the problem with youth today is kind of his question. Now, think about the 1960s. Of course, you may not remember that. Uh, <laughs> we can think I, about it. <laughs> I have a few years on you. Ron and I can think about it. We go, oh, yeah, that's what about it sometimes. <laughs> but, but uh, in fact, our blog this week, we're using Wild in the Streets, which is a very popular film in 1968, kind of about the times, mm -hmm. uh, is uh, on college campuses. We're going up in flames, a lot of rebellion and so forth, a lot of teenage angst. And uh, you have this guy by then uh, starting to pack out auditoriums. One guy standing in the middle of an auditorium, stadiums at some points, with an overhead projector saying the problem is authority. You don't understand authority. And churches were desperate for some way to rescue their kids from the culture that was going amiss. I understand that. The problem is very few looked at what he was actually teaching. And so rather than a biblical view of authority, he was teaching authoritarianism, which is quite different. However, when you feel like your family's in danger and your house is on fire, you'll turn to virtually anybody. So he starts becoming more popular uh, to the point he actually had over two and a half million people go through his seminars. Now, here's how this impacts the church then, is those who are going to the seminars imbibe on his material. Some of them become pastors then in churches where they carry these teachings into their churches and pass them on to their people without really not even saying, here's where I got it from. And so you have a quite a large group of people who believe things that sound biblical, but are not biblical. So that's kind of his start and how he got going. Okay. Uh, my wife and I, I mentioned I became a Christian three years after my son was born. And uh, the church we were going to said, you have to go to the seminar. Uh, mm. And we're like, no, nah, we don't really want to. And they said, well, we'll pay for it. It was $75, I think. And so we agreed. And we went the first night. And Joy started going, I can't go back. I just can't. I can't mm. do this. I can't. There's something really wrong here. Now, I was so biblically illiterate at the time. I go to the Old Testament and see this book, Job, J-O-B. And I say, <laughs> oh, that's I mean, I just didn't know anything about the Bible. Uh Number one. Number two, in the seminar, you don't have time to actually look up the passages he's citing because you have, at the time, you had a, a three-ring binder. You didn't get material in advance. You got it in between sessions for the next session, so you couldn't read ahead. Uh, and you would write down the notes of what he was writing down on the overhead projector. So you never had the chance to actually think about what he was saying in the context of the passage very fast moving. Hmm. And then you get into what we call a yes set. And so he'll tell you things like, he'll use the word grace. That's a familiar word, right? We all know what grace is, except we don't. Because he also gives you a new definition that you just sort of adapt without thinking about it. So he tells you grace is God giving you the power and ability to do his will joyfully. Now, we like grace. And we want to do God's will joyfully, but they aren't the same thing. Right. And you don't catch it when it comes through. And now that becomes your definition for grace. Wow. 
right? And he becomes popular largely because of what I would also refer to as the good old boy network, which is this. And this is how the Enneagram is in the church as well. We have other false teachings like that. The good old boy network is very simple. Pastor Joe down the street is my friend. Pastor Joe has Gothard's material, the Enneagram, pick it, whatever it is. And his church is growing numerically and it seems financially, so it must be a good thing. So we'll be using it in our church because I trust Pastor Joe. And then we tell Pastor Fred down the street who takes it because they know us and they trust us who trust Pastor Joe and nobody really vests the material. And now it's everywhere. Wow. That's how that stuff grows. Have you heard about Carly Jean Los Angeles, which is a small Los Angeles-based clothing line founded and run by Carly Jean Brannon? She is a Christian. She's a mom. She's pro-life. And she makes really cute clothes, especially for women in my phase of life. And by my phase of life, I mean the phase of life where you don't want to or have time to go to the mall and try on 100 things only to come home disappointed and empty-handed. I love that the clothes are cut a little bit on the roomy side, so they're very forgiving, and they really work well together. And now is a great time to check out CJLA because she just added 90 pieces to her clearance sale. They're having a massive blowout clearance sale right now. So check that out, but also check out their new Staples collection. You know, we're moving from winter into spring, and maybe you're looking for a couple of pieces to freshen up your wardrobe. There's some really cute jeans and sweaters and tees and tanks that you can kind of switch out as we move from winter into spring. So check it out. Go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. Use my code ALISA for 20% off your first order. Again, that's CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. Use my code ALISA for 20% off your first order. Wow, that's that is very insightful. Ron, continue with the history. So Gothard is doing these uh, seminars, and how does that then grow into the IBLP, which stands for the, if I'm correct on this, Institute for Biblical Life Principles? Is that right? Basic, basic, basic life principles. Basic yeah. life principles. Yeah, I mean, uh, it started out as IBYC, Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts. The name change occurred after the first major scandal around 1980. Talk about the scandal. That that would be yeah, helpful. They needed to rebrand, and they did. So in uh, in the late 70s, uh, Bill Gothard had acquired a, a whole lot of property. Uh, he had two, he had a, a Learjet and a turboprop uh, plane. We've taught, we know one of his former pilots. Uh, he's helped us quite a bit in research. Um, he, he grew immensely. He had, he, he, um, he had property in this place called the Northwoods Retreat Center in uh, northern Wisconsin. Or it was in Michigan or Wisconsin, I forget. Michigan, okay. So it's way up in the hinterlands, you know. Um, what had happened was... Yeah, yeah, just a, a side note. Yeah. When he built runway, he built a runway large enough so that the presidential jet would be able to land on it because he was planning the president was to come to him. Wow. Well, of course, you know. <laughs> So they, wow. they would come to him, right? So um, I, I forgot that, yeah. So it, he had uh, conferences and retreats up there, and it was, um, I guess he had, he had probably very grand plans for that. What was going on, though, Gothard is still not married. He's um, 
he's going to be 90 this year if he makes his uh, makes it to November. He's born in um, 1934, and um, so uh, he's he he was he's never married, and there it's I like to uh, research that a little bit more because I think there might still be people alive who know his family upbringing and what might account for that. It's, it's apparently this was something his father had hammered into him. The idea that it's better to be unmarried mm. if you're going to be in the Lord's work. And of course that was coming from a guy who was married and had several children, his dad. Um, so Bill took it to heart as the oldest son and uh, he expected his brother Stephen to do the same, to remain unmarried. Um, but Stephen, you know, it wasn't going to be as easy for him. And he was, you know, coming to Bill, begging him to allow him to marry. So this brings another insight into how this organization worked. If you worked at the Institute, you had to get Bill's permission to date you had to get Bill's permission to get engaged and to get married. I mean, it was very controlling for the staff. And for, uh, and it could even be controlling for people who weren't on staff, but just wanted to, to work with them in some capacity. We could talk about that later. But uh, so, but Bill kept turning Steve down, Stephen. And um, it started happening that he started uh, seducing some of the young women. Uh, and uh, it, there does seem to be evidence now that Bill himself was doing things that may not have amounted to the same thing as brother Stephen was doing, but they would definitely be disqualifying for ministry. And these are the kinds of things that eventually did result in his termination from the Institute that these things might, these things were probably happening back in the late seventies. But with mm-hmm. Stephen, it was, it was, he was sexually seducing young women who were like half his age, or well, 10 years younger than him at least, maybe half his age. In any case, Bill, uh, to, to apparently to uh, manage the problem, Bill had Stephen transferred up to the Northwoods Retreat Center in Wisconsin. And he sent staff people up there, including young women. And it just got worse. Uh, and, and this became the whole real scandal uh, that just totally blew up uh, 79, well, 19. By the time it was done, it was yeah. around the world in the news and magazines. Bill, and- you know, I mean, bigger things were happening in evangelicalism with Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, by this right. time, in terms of, of money and, and, and exposure, Bill wasn't as big as he was in the mid early to mid seventies, but he's still pretty big. He was huge in evangelicalism still very much. Uh, But in terms of coverage, I I saw coverage of the scandal on our local ABC affiliate in Chicago. Now around that, I was living right across town from Bill's home church, Bill Gothard's home church. Uh, So this was very close geographically to me. And, um, I would talk to people from his church about it. Now, looking back, it's pretty clear they were very much in the dark. Uh, you know, how, somehow he managed to keep a whole lot of information from getting out, even though his board knew about it, even though there were certain individuals across the country, like Earl Rodmacher, president of Western Seminary, who knew about it. Uh, somehow he managed to really keep a pretty tight lid on it. However, what did happen is the seminar business went bust. It, right. He uh, he wasn't he was he was 
it's hard to overstate just how big he was. Mm. I mean, how do you, he was filling out 20, 30, 40,000 seat auditoriums in the seventies with his overhead projector. And I mean, he wasn't Taylor Swift, let's face it. Okay. Yeah. But he was, he was a phenom that -hmm. people took notice of and he, ironically, largely forgotten. Well, uh, he wasn't able to fill to get the capacity crowds that he had been getting in the seminars in the early 80s. But I was already alerted through people I knew at his home church, which was LaGrange Bible Church, um, that he'd already planned to shift his focus to homeschooling. Mm. And uh, so this was early 19, around 1980, I was told that at the Oak Brook headquarters, he had renovated it, uh, a portion of it to include a, a, a large printing facility and uh, docks for, for trucks to come in and out to take lo- large quantities of material to wherever they needed to go, you know, maybe airshipped or whatever. In any case, uh, plans were afoot to to have a, a major redirection of the ministry. The the seminars continued. I'm I'm told uh, he would occasionally even make live appearances, not in places as big as he used to, but still in not tiny places. Uh, but most of the most of the seminars were uh, were done on uh, VHS cassettes. Uh, which yeah. were new. We, we right. remember when they were new. I still remember <laughs> those too. I do remember those. <laughs> do you love coffee? Do you love shade-grown coffee? Do you love direct trade coffee? Do you love coffee that is pesticide-free and mold-free and really high artisan quality? Well, if you're like me, you love really, really, really good coffee. But do you also love the pro-life cause? Well, you can bring those two passions together with seven weeks coffee. I absolutely love this coffee company, A, because of all the reasons I just said, but also because it's run by Christians who give 10% of all their profits to pro-life pregnancy resource centers all across the nation. They have given away hundreds of thousands of dollars because of people like you who either just buy a pound or two as a gift or sign up for the Heartbeat Club, which is a subscription service. Now, I'm a member of the Heartbeat Club. I get my espresso beans from seven weeks every single month. And you want to know why it's called Seven Weeks Coffee, and that's because at seven weeks, the baby's heartbeat is detectable, but also at seven weeks, the baby is about the size of a coffee bean. So if you want to give it a try, I think this is the absolute perfect way to give a gift to somebody that you might not know what to get the person who has everything, or maybe you've been invited over to dinner and you want to bring a host gift that your uh, um, host and hostess will really appreciate, why not bring a pound of Seven Weeks Coffee? Check it out. Go to sevenweekscoffee.com. Use my code ELISA for 10% off your order. Again, that's sevenweekscoffee.com. Use my code ELISA for 10% off. Let's let's back up just a little bit. Let's back up because what I'd like to do is give our audience just a, a feeling for what the basic teachings were. Because right. I, I definitely want to get and touch on that homeschooling element because my understanding, and you can correct this if this is wrong, is that one of the ways a lot of these teachings got into the average home 
of the average Christian was through the homeschool curriculums that became so popular. Um, but let's talk about what the teachings actually are. And this may be kind of a tough question to ask you to do it this succinctly, but if you could pick like the maybe three to five major points that would summarize the basic teachings of Gothardism, you know, what would those points be? Because I do know that a lot of the teaching had to do with the family, right? And the roles, like gender roles. And so for a lot of people who might be complementarian, they're they're attracted to this because they're thinking, oh, this is good. This is traditional family values and and gender roles. But it went beyond that a little bit from my understanding. So so talk, well, Don, you can start with, you know, what were the teachings that we would need to be aware of that were maybe the most unbiblical ones that kind of hallmarked this movement. Okay, he starts you off the very first night with what he calls the seven non-optional principles of life. Now that's key because they're non-optional. In other words, you don't have an option. They're non-optional. Right. Although many people think that they are. They're, he tells you they're not. Uh, and they are uh, design, thank God for your design and the foundation of genuine self-acceptance. Number two is authority. This is key number one key to everything else that he does, authority. Uh, responsibility is three. Suffering is four. Ownership is five. Freedom is six. Seven is success. On the surface, they sound okay until you start understanding what he's saying in them. So authority is, on the first night, he tells you that authority is a key element. And to tell you that, then he goes to a biblical story of Jesus and the Roman centurion uh, and tells you that this is a teaching about authority, right? The centurion's uh, servant is sick. He goes to Jesus, asks Jesus to heal him. Jesus says, good, I'll come over to your house. And he goes, oh, no, I too am a man under authority. I say, go do this, and they go do it. I go do that, go do it. Uh, and so from that, we get this idea of an umbrella of protection. If you stay under the umbrella of protection, which is your pastor, father, uh, whatever male headship it is, then you're protected, he tells you. So, you know, your car is not going to break down. You're going to have a good job, hot wife, hot husband, whatever. Stay under the umbrella of authority. You won't get acne. Your kids will be well-behaved and it'll be great. But if you get out from under this umbrella of protection then you're in rebellion, and rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. So we go back and we deal with this. We go, okay, well, is, number one, is this a story about authority or something else? And what we discover is it's a teaching about Jesus. It's not about authority. It's about power. Who has power? Jesus has power. And because he has power and because he's God, he doesn't have to go to the house because he could just speak and the servant will be healed. It's a story about who Jesus is. It's not a story about umbrellas of protection. But you're in there shaking your head, filling out your little forms, and you bought it. Next, you a definition of getting out from under the umbrella of protection, which I mentioned, is getting out from under the umbrella of protection is rebellion, and rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. So you are safe as long as you Alicia, stay under the headship of your husband, but if you get out from under that headship, all manner of evil might befall you. That's okay. a lot of fear. That's a lot of fear. Well, you know, one thing I would like to say, Don, uh, yes. looking right at the 
basic textbook, the basic seminar textbook. Um, and he's he, he kind of sneaks up on you with the authority teaching. That is his first most important foundational principle. But in the basic seminar, before he gets to that, he has this whole chapter on the acceptance of self. And he talks about uh, forming attitudes about yourselves, evidences of self-rejection, basic insights on self-acceptance, you know, and this kind of softens up the audience, kind of like it's it's a soft, cushy feeling. And, you know, this this comes right on the heels of Philip Reeve's book uh, in 1966, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. You know, so we're, we're we've entered into this therapeutic age, uh, and Gothard, you know, this is he's pretty savvy to this. You know, he he understands that people are, we're talking in in either Freudian, Jungian, or Ericksonian terms about relationships now in, in going into the 1970s, and he 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 parlays this. You know, he he uses this in his teaching to kind of because authority. This is the same time when I'm in school and my teachers are warning us about authority. Look what happened in Germany. Mm. Look what happened about, you know, look at all these guys who said we were only following orders. So how do you soften up an audience? Because you're about to give them something that's kind of going against the grain of what's being put into the educational system in the 1970s. It's going against the grain of what's happening on college campuses. Of course, that's why a lot of the parents are there, you know, because they're, they don't want their kids joining the SDS or the Yippies or, you know, they don't want to see them in the news, you know. Yeah. Um, and so he softens you up with all this talk about self-acceptance. And what we've learned from meeting with people who know him personally is he, he didn't really practice this himself. He, to this right. day, this 90-year-old guy, almost 89, he's got dark hair. Do you see my hair? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not 90. This hair has been like this for a while. Uh, he wears lifts in his shoes because he is kind of short. So, you know, he talks about self-acceptance, accepting the way God made you, and he doesn't practice it. So back to you, Don. Okay. That's what we have to so, say. Yeah, the authority established, getting out from under the of authority is uh, rebellion. Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. And then he does this other interesting thing as the night goes on, is he turns to Jesus as a child and says the only story we have of Jesus uh, is at the age of 12, and he remained behind uh, when his parents left Jerusalem, and he remained behind in a temple. And they came back and frantically were looking for him. And then he says this. It's an amazing thing. Jesus had to make the tough decision to get back under his parents' umbrella of protection. Now, think about what that means. If you get up from under the umbrella, you are in rebellion. Rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. One. Two. Jesus had to make the tough decision to get back under his parents' umbrella of protection, which means what? He was out from under it to begin with. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the first time we met with him, when I raised this up, there was uh, my pastor, Ron. Uh, and two others were, were with us the first time we met with them. And I raised this thing. I walked him through. Here's what you teach in the first hour. Yes. Here's what you say about Jesus. Yes. And I said, okay, so if Jesus had to make the tough decision to get back under the parents' umbrella protection, that necessarily means he was out from under it to begin with. Doesn't that mean he's a sinner and therefore cannot be our Savior? How does that work? 
What did he say? What did he say? Something like, oh, we would never say that. Of course. Oh, no, he didn't say that. He he thought about it and he did his look up into the left corner of the room. And he finally said, because they said, either your teaching is wrong or Jesus is a sinner. He said, no, my teaching is right and Jesus isn't a sinner. But he couldn't tell us how that works. Right. Wow. Another thing he teaches is that circumcision is a moral requirement. And I suggested that there's a small book in the New Testament he might be interested in reading called Galatians. Galatians, yeah. Deals with this issue. <laughs> wow. So it's been an interest. So those, you know, those are some of the big things. Authority being number one. He lives in what we would call a patriocentric teaching. The patriocentric the essentially property of the male head of the family. Another thing he taught was uh, no birth control, right. uh, having the biggest family you possibly can. Uh, and that's where my family story comes in, uh, which when I began researching, it had not developed to the point that it had by the time we first met with Gothard and some of his uh, staff. Is this a good time to share that, Don, do you think? Sure. And also answers the 19 and counting, why they have so many children, because yeah. right. Full movement. You have to have as many children as you can until God stops it. Yeah. Right. Sometime in the mid '90s, uh, we had a family get together. I, I hadn't seen my dad had died, you know, years earlier. Not there a whole bunch of people on my dad's side of the family I hadn't seen in decades, and uh, some of, some of it was because they had lived in different states and things like that. Well, in any case, um, part of my family that lived in uh, Northeast Indiana came to this family together and I had seen the, the, the wife in this family, my cousin had used to babysit me when I was a kid, you know, uh, and she was pregnant and she was in her forties. And I thought, well, people do that. You know, it, that kind of thing happens. The thing is she had um, three kids who were in elementary and going one of them in uh, middle school. And she had a baby that she had just delivered like uh, maybe less than a year earlier. And this was, so this was her fifth pregnancy, which again, I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to sit in judgment on anything like that, but I, I, I found out that they were really into Bill Gothard and it was kind of weird because here I was kind of researching him and I, I, uh, I was vaguely aware that there was some connection, but I didn't realize how deep it was. So they went home. We had a great time together. I, I tried to avoid giving them my opinion about Gothard. They had a lot of questions for me because they knew I was in a biblical studies program, you know, and I just kind of held back. I, I, I wanted to have a pleasant time with my family. Um, and so uh, after they went back a few weeks later, my mom calls up and says, you need to pray for your cousin because she has a brain tumor. And... Uh, so what happened was they lived way up in Northeast Indiana. Now they had been doing everything Gothard now, which meant that their previous uh, child was home delivered. Uh, and she couldn't do that now because she could not have the surgery while she was pregnant, but she had to have it as soon as she wasn't, which means they had to drive down to Fort Wayne, have the baby. The next day she had to be rolled into brain surgery to have this tumor removed. Um, when they came out, when she came out of surgery, uh, 
her brother, her sister-in-law, and her parents were in the room with the oncologist. My, my uh, her brother and sister-in-law are pharmacists, so they have some medical background. They ask a lot of questions. And, and uh, the, the, the oncologist said, this is one of those tumors that could have been in her brain when she was a little girl in a kind of mm. a seed form and something triggered it. My cousin, uh, her brother asked, could it have been the pregnancy, the late in life pregnancy? And the, the oncologist said, yes, it, it, it could have been. Uh, okay, what do you do about that? Well, all I know is that a couple of weeks later, my mom calls up and she's furious. I mean, we were, we were really close when... When we were little, we lived pretty close to this family. Got to, they were close to us. And my mom goes, who is this Bill Gothard? And I said, why do you want to know? Well, Sherry was pregnant again. And my mom had found out it was because they were trying to follow Bill Gothard's teachings. Wow. Her, her mother had said to her, um, you know, had said to her, uh, you know, honey, you know what the doctor said, that this is highly risky now. Now, it was right about this time, maybe a little earlier, that we were still, we had been looking for materials to do more research on Gothard. And a man in Ohio had sent us a box or a couple, how many boxes? All I know is I got a call from you, Don. You said, Ron, do you have any room in your house? (laughs) you, You didn't have enough room in your house for these boxes of books and videotapes and all kinds of things. And I got them to my house and I'm looking through it and I find this thing that he's got a stack of books from the Medical Training Institute of America. What is that? Well, it's headquartered at the same address as the Institute in Basic Life Principles. It's Bill Gothard's MTIA, his Medical Training Institute. Now we knew about his uh, ATI, you know, Advanced Training Institute. What is this? Well, he's got a booklet. He's got a booklet in there about circumcision why you should do that. And he's got a booklet in there about basically having large families. And and the booklet says that what the booklet asks the question, well, what if you're told by your doctor that the pregnancy might be dangerous to the health of the mother? And the booklet says, trust God instead of your doctor. So by now I kind of had an idea what was going on in my cousin's family. She went, they, she had to go through the same routine, drove down to Fort Wayne, delivered the baby, sixth child, um, went into surgery, only this time it didn't go so well. The tumor was bigger, buried deeper in her brain. She had a stroke on the operating table. When she woke up, she was in a coma for a while. When she woke up, she didn't remember anyone. She had no recollection of anybody. Eventually, I forget how long it took, but she recognized her mother. And the first words, some of the first words to her were, Mom, they tell me I have six kids. Hmm. How did I get six kids? Wow. She was never the same. She's since passed away. Hmm. Uh, That meeting, I confronted Bill Gothard with this. I showed him the place in his booklet where they teach this. And one of his VPs looked at me and said, well, sometimes you just got to use common sense. I don't want to tell you what kind of feelings I was having. Mm. So, so, so here, here we have, as I mentioned early on, uh, maybe even before we started, the book has three guiding things in it. One, are his teachings biblical? Uh, in the important areas, they are not. 
Two, does he live according to his teachings, whether they're biblical or not? The answer to that is no, he does not. Third is anecdotal. How do his teachings affect those who follow him? This is just one example yeah. of yeah. what happens. Yeah. There's a cost to pay to false teaching. Yeah. There, that, and, and so much of cultish kind of teachings end up in abusive situations like the one that you've just described. I want to pivot just a little bit here um, and get your thoughts, both of you, on on something. I don't know if you have read the book, um, The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Are you? I've kind of paged a little bit through it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one of the one of the things she claims, so she she kind of she says she skirted the fringes of the Bill Gothard movement. She tells some stories in the book. Now, overall, um, I'm not a huge fan of this book. In fact, I've done a couple no, podcasts no, no. <laughs> um, about it. Um, but but I want to maybe ha have you guys help us unpack something. So you know, she she told about um, some of the Gothard teachings, which we would all agree are unbiblical, right? We would agree that those are not biblical teachings. But then she connects those with the doctrine of complementarianism and and. Uh, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but if anybody's unfamiliar with that term, I think a broad, just kind of 30,000 foot definition of that is just the biblical teaching that men and women are equal in value and worth and dignity, but they have different roles to play in the church and the home. That's essentially at the bottom of complementarianism. Now, in the book, um, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, she, she I just want to read this quote and get your guys' thoughts on this, because I think that one of the most important things we can do for people who might find themselves in cultic types of, of churches or environments is learning how to untie the knots and um, not throw out the whole baby with the bathwater just because maybe there was an abuse of a doctrine. Um, so she says this, I only skirted the fringes of the Bill Gothard movement, but I can tell you from experience that it was a whitewashed tomb. I think we would agree so far. Um, but then she goes on. She says uh, she told a friend that she was thinking maybe there's a link between complementarianism and abuse. And her friend said, no, there's no proof to that. And here's what she says. This is a declaration she makes in her book. She says, but there is. We can no longer deny a link between complementarianism and abuse. And so she's essentially saying that if you teach people that men and women have different roles to play in the home and in the church, um, and that maybe even our biology might indicate what those roles should be. As a woman, for example, my body was designed to bear children and to feed newborn babies. And that should tell me something about what the newborn baby needs from me and um, what my role might be to play in that. We're living in a culture that would say, that's crazy talk. That's old fashioned. That's abusive to women to say that, um, you know, to even hint that perhaps a woman should stay home with her child or something along those lines. Um, mm. Help our audience with that. And we'll start with you, Don. Um, you know, how might you, for somebody who's saying, look, I, I wonder if complementarianism does lead to abuse. Did that lead to a Bill Gothard? How could we untie those knots? Okay. There's a difference between what something teaches and how someone may misuse it. That's a really important aspect. So you just use the word authority, for example. Well, what does that mean? You have to start not defining it. And, and biblically, um, let me let me do it this way. I, I like word pictures better. You have a difference between being a cattle driver and a shepherd. Both of them may get the job done, but one of them is more volatile than the other. Hmm. Right? And we are called as pastors to be shepherds, not cattle drivers. 
We are called as husbands to be shepherds, not cattle drivers. And so it starts with husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Mm-hmm. Now, if we are living that way, I have to tell you something. Those that you are leading, and that's the key word, leading, will follow because you're a good leader. They may do what you demand because you're abusive, but that's not the same thing as leading. And that, that's how I'd phrase it. I'm married 50, I'll be married 54 years this year, and my wife still likes me, which is a really plus. <laughs> that's a good sign. <laughs> that's an accomplishment, huh? Yeah, but, you know, my task is to serve her to the best of my ability, to help her be the best that she can. And there are areas where she submits because I'm the head of the house, not because I'm the boss of her. There's a difference between the two. Hmm. And that is often missed. And unfortunately, Gothardism attracts some, not all, but some who are already abusive and then take his teachings as sort of a credit card to behave badly. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. Yeah. So it isn't, it isn't essential in a teaching. It is a misuse of the teaching yeah. by those who already are abusive. Right. Like you can't, you can't say that we should have no leadership because right. there are leaders who are abusive. Yeah. Ron, did you want to add something to that? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know how much this counts, Don, but I can vouch for you. You know, I've watched their marriage for the last 30 years of our relationship. Uh, but what I, the reason I don't know if it counts is because I'm just a cisgendered white male. So that's right. Your opinion uh, does not count at all. You get no opinion. <laughs> I also happen to think complementarianism is the way to go. And thankfully, my, I have a wife who doesn't want to be the head of the house. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. Trust me. So it's like, it, it kind of works out well when you have that situation. But what happens when you don't have a wife who, you know, who's happy in that role, it, you'll end up with conflict. And I think a lot of the result of the conflict may be interpreted as abuse. But it's really interesting. There was a study done um, in the Journal of Family Violence, in uh, published in 2012, February 2012, the title of it was Relationship Between Egalitarianism, Dominance, and Violence in Intimate Relationships. And the, the study was probably buried because it, it said things that people just really aren't happy about. One of the quotes is, a women's own high egalitarian attitude and high dominance score were associated with higher victimization of men. Wow. Uh, another thing in the study, studies examining men's and women's use of physical violence indicate that the number of women using physical aggression is either comparable to that of men or higher than that of men. Wow. Uh, what they found was is that, you know, apparently a lot of men for some reason, just don't want to hit their wives, you know, even though they could. But there are a lot of women who, well, like it yeah. says, so the, the, the studies have not borne out, uh, at least not. I mean, I'm, I forget if I looked, if I read that portion of the book, of, of Barr's book, uh, to, and if I looked for documentation, because that's what I look for. What yeah. studies, and what are you basing this? And is it anecdotal information? Right. Or a study like the one I found here. Right. Uh, 
I have plenty of anecdotal information about abusive men from complementarian households. But the vast majority of men in complementarian households are are not abusive. And I think some of the more uh, left of center or progressive uh, women in the church have basically admitted that, you know, that they, they can't, there's not enough evidence to establish any kind of causal relationship. Yeah. And, you know, this, as far as the Gothard connection to it is concerned, I mean, I was, I, I was taught complementarianism before they invented the word, before the word was coined in the 1990s. Um, I, I was uh, not to be telling tales out of school, but, um, I got a call from Wayne Grudem when I was working at Wheaton in, in Foundation and Corporate Relations because he was looking for funding for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And I was I kind of landed in the role of uh, a grant proposal writer there. And he asked me if I could find somebody to give, uh, you know, uh, find funding for CBMW and as soon as he said it, I just like turned turned white. I, I mean, whiter than I am. And, uh, and I said, I just, we didn't have, you know, digital resources really back then. And so I knew this was going to be a huge challenge finding someone with that narrow an interest. Um, he sent me a copy of the book, uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And um I, I remember thinking, oh, complementarianism. Yeah, this is this is found in Charles Ryrie's book, Balancing the Christian Life, that was published, what, 1960-something, you know? I mean, this is not new. Right. right. Uh, this is, um, you know, it, the idea that the man is the head of the house. Now, and should be, only, the only male should be pastors in the church and so on, is, is not new. Uh, now, some of the stuff that I've heard and even read, is it wrong for a woman to be a police officer? Okay. I, I don't, that's not the way I was taught complementarianism in, right. when I, when I was in Bible college. Is it wrong for a woman to work outside the home? Well, I, I was raised with a grandmother and a mother who worked outside the home. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so no, I, 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 well, I there's like a there's a spectrum to it too. You know, it de- you can ask ten complementarians how they define it, and you're going to get ten different kind of places they fall on the spectrum. But no, yeah, that's very yeah, helpful. Yeah. That that's very helpful. Now we are we there's so so many places we can go. We are like coming close to being out of time. Oh, I don't want. Very quick. Go ahead, Don. Very quick. Okay, uh, I would uh, I would uh, suggest getting the book Ninety Five Theses for a New Reformation, Chapter Nine. Okay. Deals directly with this question of uh, of uh, headship. Very biblical. Dr. Don Williams does a great job with that. That's one. Two. We have an article on our website, uh, the cult of the cult of uh, godly womanhood, uh, mm. done by Carol Campbell. She does an excellent job on this topic. Three. I want to just mention the Proverbs 31 woman. This is very important in this whole discussion. Because without the Proverbs 31 man, you wouldn't have the Proverbs 31 woman who did real estate transactions. She took care of the home. She did all these kinds of things. And we don't even know. I mean, my my line is we don't even know if the guy had a job. Uh, (laughs) Right. He didn't have a problem with her being doing the kinds of things that she was doing outside the home. Yeah. And yet she's held up as the example for women today. 
What about the Proverbs 31 man? Where's he in all this equation? That's an important thing. And he rises up and calls her blessed. That's the end of that. That's good. Very good. Um, I always liked the Proverbs 31 woman because it said her arms are strong for her tasks. And I always had kind of like more muscly arms. And I thought, <laughs> see, I, she had buff arms too. It's okay. Um, as we come to a close here, I, I want to make sure our audience maybe can grasp the continued influence of the, of Gothardism. So maybe right. just as we close out here briefly, talk about what type of presence the Gothard teachings still have in the homeschool curriculums, where people can, you know, be, uh, uh, like, help us discern that. What, what do we need to look out for? What do we need to just stay away from? How can we discern this, not just in homeschool curriculums, but maybe just, you know, wherever these teachings might be found? Don, we can start with you, and then we'll go to Ron. Well, the first thing I would say is the first thing I start with everybody who's been in a group like this to context us is a text without a context is a pretext. Understand how to read the Bible in context so that you can check out your pastor, leader, whoever you're listening to. As Joy sometimes says, just because you hear from the pulpit doesn't mean it isn't really stupid. <laughs> uh, Well-intentioned people can say things that are just wrong. Uh, that's one. Two, authoritarianism ranks very high in Gothardism. It's, it's a patriocentric movement, not a complementarian movement. There's differences. Uh, three, his understanding of grace is very deficient uh, because he tells us that grace is something that you earn. Well, that means it's not grace because grace by definition is a kindly attitude toward the undeserving. We don't earn grace. It is God's attitude toward us in spite of who we are, not because of it. That's good. Ron? Uh, as far as how how much is uh, remains of his influence, you, you know, he, he didn't invent all these ideas. Right. So most of them were there before, uh, you know, he came around. He, he uh, you know, his particular way of combining them and articulating them is probably unique to him, but excuse me, <laughs> but he, um, you know, he, he took, he took, he was using lumber that was already laying around to, to make this. Mm. Uh, and a lot of it's very stubborn and part of a subculture that, you know, gravitates toward that kind of a thing. Uh, you also have people out there who are uh, claiming falsely that he doesn't teach any of this stuff. Mm. Uh, I have had people cancel me on social media uh, just because I gave Ginger Duggar Volo's book a good thumbs up, you know, and, and why did they do that? Well, because they have a friend who is in Gothardism who's told them that, that Ginger's book is all lies. Mm. Well, I happen to know it's not, you know, right. I, and I don't just have one person who goes to my church. I used to have, I used to go to a church where some of Gothard's staff went, you know, so, some people who actually worked at the Institute were employees there, uh, were, were members of my church and were employees, including the man who ran Bill Gothard's printing press was a member of my church. So, I, I mean, and, I know of what should I speak. And we met with Bill Gothard a lot. There was a, a period where we met for about six weeks every Monday. Yeah. We called it Mondays wow. with Bill. Just to talk yeah. about oh, man. Yeah. I, he called me, he summoned me to his office once. I said, I'll call Don. They said, no, don't call Don. We just want you. And they tried to do stuff, you know, they tried to intimidate me. 
uh, I've had a lot of experience with Bill Gothard and Don has had even more. Yeah. So anyways. Well, good. All right. Well, I, I so appreciate you guys coming on. Um, very quickly, Don, tell everyone where they can get the book and anything else that you want them to know about connecting with you and, and your ministry and you okay. as well, Ron. Amazon.com. Order it right from there. Give us a good rating. Uh, mm -hmm. It's also on Kindle. If you have other digital uh, ways of reading books, it's you can get it pretty much any digital uh, uh, bookseller. Uh, it's there as well. Okay. All right. Well, go ahead, Ron. Did you have a, a way for people no, to connect with you? Thank you. Okay. Well, I want to thank my guests, uh, Ron Hensel and Don Vino. What a great discussion. If you found it particularly helpful, I want to invite you to like this post wherever you see it shared on social media. Send it to your friends via email or on social media. Also really helps us out so much if you leave good reviews on the uh, audio podcast platforms wherever you're listening to this. And of course, subscribing on YouTube, liking it on YouTube. If you see it go by, just press like. It really helps get the algorithms going to get this into the news feeds of more people. So thanks so much for listening today. And as we pursue Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. So pray for me and I will pray for you. No turning right or left will make it through. The road that's narrow and the gate that's small. Don't give up. It's gonna be Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.